Good evening, I'm Rob Marks. I'm the director of the Performing Arts Library, and I want to welcome you to both a Penn New Writers event and the second event in the 91-92 Reading Room Reading Series here at the Performing Arts Library. Um, it's really thanks to Pamela Pierce and her cohorts at Penn, and also John Guare, our co-producer for Reading Room Readings and also uh, a good friend of Penn and Penn member, that has brought these two organizations together tonight and uh, we'll probably be doing another event, possibly on Latino writers in the spring. Uh, tonight's format um, will actually be quite different from everything we've done for those of you who have been with us through the Reading Room Readings process. Instead of a complete new work, we're going to have introductions and excerpts from well, introductions of three new writers and excerpts from three new works. First, each of the, let's say, senior Penn members will introduce one of the younger new playwrights. I don't know if new is the correct word at this point. And after each individual reading, there will be a panel discussion and then questions and answers. And in all of your programs, there should have been an index card. And as you listen to our six playwrights hold forth, think great thoughts, think of questions, our volunteers will come down the aisle at the moment when John gives the signal, and um, those cards will be passed up to our master playwright here. And afterwards, there will be wine and chips uh, out in the lobby. I also have to thank Penn, because for the first time, we're going to have better wine tonight than we've had in all of our <laughs> earlier programs. Um, we'd love you to join our mailing list. Sign on in the lobby. Um, I also have to put in a plug that we go back to our usual stage reading format next week with Eve Ensler's new play, Lemonade, which will include uh, a cast with uh, Wally Shawn and Brenda Curran. Um, it's been my pleasure for the past year or so to keep introducing John on Monday nights. I don't have to introduce John anymore. We all know him. We all know how wonderful he has been. Also how active he has been both for the New York Public Library and Penn and playwrights of all kinds everywhere. And um, with that, I turn it over to John Guerra. Uh, the question tonight is, that we all will discuss after, is why be a playwright? And uh, I'm very excited. It's really, in 1984, I was a judge in a, uh, a contest called the Avery Hopwood Prize, a very distinguished prize given out by University of Michigan. And uh, it, was, it was the first time that Arthur Miller, when he won it, got any, uh, 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 was noted at all. Uh, and it was a great, he always claims it as a, as a great, stepping stone for him as a playwright. And in 1984, the, uh, there were lots of uh, applicants, and the winner was very, very clear. It was a young man named Charles Shulman. And then uh, for a play called uh, The Ground Zero Club, and he won the Avery Hopwood Prize in, in 84. And then in 85, Steve Sondheim called me at the drama school. He, he, said, he said, I've just read a most wonderful play for the, uh, for the Young Playwrights Festival by this guy at University of Michigan. And I said, name Charlie Shulman. And he said, how did you know that? There's a play called Ground Zero Club. The play was done in one of the early, uh, uh, in one of the early uh, uh, evenings of the, uh, of the Young Playwrights Festival. Charlie graduated uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, University of Michigan, uh, and came to New York, uh, was working as a newspaper man on a Westchester paper. A job became available at Lincoln Center, the Vivian Beaumont Theater, which he took, uh, where he still works, and uh, goes to as a graduate student at uh, NYU Tisch School of the Arts, uh, and has uh, been at the Eugene O'Neill uh, Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut, and uh, has founded his own playwrights collective. This is one of the extraordinary things about being in the theater and about the process of time, is just seeing in the seven years where this uh, remarkable young man has come from. And just, I'm so glad to introduce him at this part of his career. And uh, I introduce Charles Shulman. Thank you. Thanks, John. Wow, that was very nice, John. I felt like you were talking about somebody else. But, <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to read from a play called The Greenhouse Effect. Uh, green is a family name. And um, it's the first, this is the first scene. It takes place next February. It's a converted barn belonging to the Green family on the property of their independently owned farm. A time-elapsed sunrise streams light through the windows, obscuring any view of what might exist outside the house. 
Sally, a physically mature 14-year-old, sits on the floor in a catatonic trance with her oversized stuffed dog, Fido, beside her. Her brother, George, a loser in his mid-30s, wears a polyester brown McDonald's uniform and paper hat. He sits at the table circling the want ads. Their mother, June, holds down a large flounder until it dies on the kitchen counter. <laughs> June. Either I am having hot flashes or we are experiencing a heat wave in February. February, which has always been the cruelest month. I don't know what has gotten into the world lately. She chops the fish's head off. But it is certainly behaving differently. Sometimes I don't recognize it anymore. Have you noticed how nothing stays the same as long as it used to? Nowadays, we can no longer take for granted even something as fundamental as seasonal change. Where will it end? Soon the most inconceivable of possibilities will seem boring and commonplace. If Dumbo were elected president of the United States, we would not only quickly get used to a flying elephant in the White House, we would soon accept the inevitability of his reelection. <laughs> so what if it's 85 degrees in February when we are accustomed to snow and bitter cold? What good would it do us to question it? What harm could possibly come from basking in the sunshine of a glorious day like today? George, why don't you do something productive with yourself? You should be out with your father plowing the fields. George says, don't start talking crazy, mother. You know the only fields dad plow are the fallow ones of ambiguity. <laughs> if we don't make our payment, the bank will repossess the farm. We'll be finished, kaput, capiche. How could you pick a time like this to get laid off from your job at McDonald's? We are living in a recession, mother. People cannot afford to eat poorly anymore. As far as I'm concerned, they can go McFuck themselves. I don't care what they say, they'll never convince me they're serving health food. I gave the best years of my life to that organization. Can't they place you somewhere else? There is a position available at the, at the new franchise in the Amazon Water Basin. They're looking for a few good employees to help defoliate the rainforest, diminish the world's oxygen supply, and displace the local indigenous population. Sounds interesting, but I would prefer to stay in the area. If that doesn't pan out, I can always join the armed forces. June. What if you die in a war that doesn't make any sense? Of course, I would rather die in a war that makes sense. But no matter what happens, I'm guaranteed a free college education. There must be some new fields opening up. Organized crime is expanding its interest in waste management. I could manage waste. What about a career in drug rehabilitation? I need three years with an addiction and a year or two of clean living before I can get a decent job. There are a lot of ex-addicts out there. It's a very competitive market. Credentials are a must. There must be something you can succeed at. Not necessarily. Besides, you're putting too much pressure on me. Why is this burden of responsibility weighing so heavily on my shoulders? Billy would have found a way to save the farm. I am sick and tired of hearing how everything would have been different around here if only Billy hadn't. George, no. Don't relive the trauma. <laughs> how could you do it, mother? What were you thinking? I don't know. How could you abandon him in a shopping mall? He was only seven years old, old enough to fend for himself. Billy was a very independent kid. I wouldn't worry. I'm sure everything turned out just fine. I stopped feeling sorry for him a long time ago. In fact, I'm glad it happened. It was always Billy this, Billy that. Billy, Billy, Billy. Billy was the good one. Billy was the smart one. Billy was the handsome one. See what I mean? You always, you always loved Billy best. You never cared about me. A loud explosion is heard. Plaster falls, flashing red lights, sirens. June, what was that? Sally, the 14-year-old in a catatonic trance on the floor. A DC-9 crashed and exploded in a small farming community near the Canadian border. June, those poor people. I feel so sorry for their families. A tragedy like this could have just as easily happened here. We should count our blessings. All 291 people on board are presumed either missing or dead. How did it happen? The cause of the fatal mishap is suspected to be engine trouble or some type of mechanical failure. George, there's quite a commotion out there. Must have been some kind of accident. Looters, camera crews, Red Cross volunteers, innocent bystanders, broken glass, unattached limbs, wreckage strewn everywhere. Have they ruled out the possibility of terrorism? Why do people commit terrorist acts? Nobody fully understands the mind of a ter terrorist. 
Some people believe they have a genetic predisposition for wreaking havoc, committing acts of violence, and refusing to seek political solutions through proper formal negotiations. Of course, we do not, of course, we do not negotiate with terrorists for good reasons. These people are fanatics, dear. They speak a language that is totally foreign to us. George picks up the salad on the table. He looks up the, at the ceiling. Wow, these plaster chips taste real. He picks up the fish and looks inside it. Oh my God, there's a hypodermic needle in this fish. Illegally disposed of AIDS contaminated hospital waste, washing up on local shores, closing beaches for the summer. Either that or the fish was an addict. Uh-oh, what's happening? It's an earthquake. Earthquake! Everybody falls down and stands up again. George, I feel like I'm surfing on jello. The earthquake stops. Never mind, everything's back to normal now. June, what happened? Was that an earthquake? Where was its epicenter? How much damage did it cause, George? Are any major sporting events going to be postponed? It's too early to tell. The airplane crash is still happening. It's dominating our attention right now. Nobody seemed to notice the earthquake or whatever it was. If nobody noticed it, it was probably nothing. But the earth shook. Plaster fell from the ceiling. These old places need a lot of work. This house has always had a solid foundation. Times change, Mom. Structures become flawed. Perhaps it was a subway train passing underneath us. Subway? What are you talking about? We live on a farm in the middle of nowhere. We are rural Americans. What subway could possibly be passing underneath us? The express train. Don't be stupid. You know that doesn't stop here. June, I think what we have just experienced was a substantial seismic occurrence, an unreported natural disaster. What are natural disasters? Tragedies which occur in nature of which we have no control, like hurricanes and typhoons, plagues and famine, homelessness and crime, power outages and mid-air collisions, low grades and poor attendance. When the space shuttle blew up, was that a natural disaster, a technical malfunction, or sabotage? Actually, Sally, this is a difficult question that you might be too stupid to understand. It is also a taboo type of question which should never be asked in public since someone might be offended. However, since we are in the privacy of our own home, we don't have to worry about other people's feelings. I have nightmares about it. It keeps exploding in my mind. At school, they tell us to try to forget about it, that those astronauts were heroes. Of course they were heroes. Anyone who says otherwise should be shot and their corpses desecrated. The first teacher in space was an admirable endeavor designed to get young American students interested in the space program. Unfortunately, they learned a lesson completely opposite of what was intended. <laughs> But the truth is, everything those astronauts were going to do in outer space was for the betterment of mankind. Sure, 90% of the mission was top secret due to its military application. But with the other 5%, they were going to build better schools, fight the drug problem, and make a better tomorrow. The sound of the airplane crashing is heard again. Lights flick on and off. Sirens flash on Sally's face. Several airplane dinners fly in through the window. <laughs> June, whatever happened to that airplane crash? The accident is still in progress. All we know are the preliminary findings. The sound of glass smashing is heard. A duffel bag flies in through the window. The door swings open. A young, long-haired man wearing an army jacket, shirt open to his waist, combat boots, and beaded necklaces around his neck is thrown headfirst into the room, crashes over the table, and lands on the floor with a thud. Ugh! Confused and disoriented, he looks around the room. Sally turns her head and makes eye contact with another human being for the first time in her life. They stand locked, locked in each other's line of vision. How did I get here? Sally tells him through mental telepathy. He sees his duffel and runs to check the airline tags. I was on a plane. He stares at Sally in amazement. Sally turns her gaze back to the audience, having been altered by this experience. Billy looks up at June. Mom, my prayers have been answered. June kisses Billy all over his face. Ah, oh, geez, Mom, this is embarrassing. My little Billy has returned to me. My name is Bill. I stopped going by Billy about 10 years ago. I guess we have a lot to catch up on. I don't know what I'm doing here. It's just a phase many young people go through. No, I, I mean, I think I hit my head. What happened, mother? I'm sorry, honey. If you only knew how much I suffered while you were away. You abandoned me in a mall. I waited for you for six weeks. I thought you were, stand I thought you were staying at a friend's house. For six weeks? I know I wasn't the perfect parent. We tried our best to find you. We had your picture put on milk cartons. You knew how much I hated that photograph, and yet you used it anyway. <laughs> George. You can't blame Mom for everything, Billy. Somewhere along the line, you have to take responsibility for your own life. Hi, George. Hi, yourself. How's everything? 
Everything sucks. Everything is terrible. Your disappearance ruined my life. Broke up mom and dad's marriage. Prevented me from going to college. Made Sally mentally ill. Drove the bank to foreclose on the farm. Now you've shown up to make everything even worse. What are you blaming me for? Mom left me in a J.C. Penney's. I thought I'd left something on in the oven. We were going to buy new shoes to go back to school in. You look like you could still use a new pair. Poor baby, how did you manage to survive all these years on your own? It's all a little fuzzy right now. All I know is that it wasn't easy. In the beginning, I spent my days hanging out at the mall, smoking cigarettes with a local teenager, scavenging food out of garbage cans at night. Eventually, I realized you weren't going to come back for me, and since I was too young to know where I lived, I decided to find a way to take care of myself. See, Mom, I told you he would be all right. So what did you do? There weren't a lot of job openings in the mall. Only McDonald's was hiring. You worked at McDonald's? No. Instead, I decided to escape from the suburbs while I was still young and my personality not yet fully formed. I caught a Greyhound to New York City and got out at the Port Authority Terminal. There I was surrounded by homeless people, crack addicts, prostitutes, and commuters. <laughs> you must have been frightened, especially during rush hour. It was pretty overwhelming. After all, I was born in a barn, a converted barn. But nonetheless, your origin should never keep you from achieving great things. Somehow I knew that. I mean, I was too young to articulate it that way, to intellectualize on that kind of abstract level. But I knew that at least I was having an adventurous life, that my experiences were unique and profound in a way most people would never know. So what did you do? I began speaking to the people around me. I found many who were even more lost than I was. There I was, an abandoned seven-year-old suburbanite, talking to a grown homeless man with a drug habit and a personality disorder. Soon I came to understand that no matter how far a person might fall, we all start out as somebody's little baby. And that realization made me weep. Oh, come on. Shut up, George. You don't really believe any of this crap, do you? Then what happened, Billy? I summoned all the strength within me, and I organized all those discarded people, and together we tried to create a utopian society where trust, love, and the recognition of each and every individual's value to the community is of primary importance. How wonderful. It was wonderful, but it didn't work. I was too young. Bit off a little more than I could chew. So what did you do? I became a moral degenerate. Seemed like the only alternative at the time. June. I've always warned my children that life is an emotional roller coaster. I never even heard you say that once. Life is an emotional roller coaster. So I became a drug addict and a prostitute. Then fate reversed my misfortune. See? I was the eighth caller on a morning radio show and won a free state of drug rehabilitation center program in Nevada. I was there for a few years until I joined the staff as a certified drug counselor. I did a just say no to drugs public service announcement, got an agent, did a few commercials on television. Which ones? You probably never saw them. I was the guy who jumped up and said, smorgasbord. That was you? <laughs> Maybe you remember this one. More pork sausages, mom, please. Oh my god, that was you. I thought there was a resemblance. After a while, I just didn't find that kind of life satisfying. And the truth is, I was kind of lost. So I went to Tibet, joined a monastery, and tried to reach Nirvana. Nirvana. How was that? The road to Nirvana turned out to be empty and meaningless. I had to walk out in the middle. It made me recognize how nothing is pure anymore, not even spiritual enlightenment. After that didn't work out, I really didn't know what to do with my life, so I went to college. <laughs> what, did, what did you study? I received advanced degrees in biology, cosmology, and climatology before joining a rock band and tooling around for a couple years. Gosh, you've done so much and you're only 19. I try to live every moment of life to the fullest of my capabilities, knowing that even the slightest of sneezes could quite possibly cause a brain aneurysm and instantaneous death. Billy sneezes. Bless you. George passes out. June puts a piece of candy in his mouth. You must be hungry, Billy. I can't remember if they fed us anything on the plane. I wanted to wait for your father, but it's later than I thought. We might as well get started without him. Billy sits at the table. June gathers the airplane dinners. Would you like roast beef or chicken? I'll try the chicken. She serves him the chicken. George. George gets up groggily and sits at the table. Chicken, please. All we have is beef. She shoves the beef in front of him. <laughs> Sally. <laughs> June drops a piece of chicken in the dog dish. June points her finger at Fido while Sally sticks her head in the bowl and eats. Stay. Stay. Fido. <laughs> June returns to the table and sits. What a day. I suppose everything happens for a reason. George. Mother. Are you implying that these seemingly random and bizarre series of events are somehow inextricably linked by forces beyond our realm of understanding? 
Do you expect us to really believe they sabotaged a commercial airliner at the cost of millions of dollars and hundreds of lives in order to create a diversionary smokescreen designed to draw attention away from an unforeseen natural disaster? Come on, mother, be serious. Why would anyone want to be covering up a teeny weeny little earthquake in the middle of bumfuck nowhere? How silly of me. I never thought about it that way. I'm in such a state of confusion, what with trying to make dinner and saving the farm from bankruptcy and helping George find a new career and Billy coming home in the earthquake and the plane crash that I just got carried away. What plane crash? <laughs> well, you know, the, that tragic plane crash in the small farming community near the Canadian border. That's over now, Mom. It's ancient history. No one remembers that anymore. It's just a blur, a Fig Newton. It's all the same plane crash. Billy, who's that sweet babe sitting on the floor? Is that your girlfriend, George? June, that's your sister, Sally. That's Sally? She certainly has developed into quite a, well, she certainly has developed. She hasn't been responding well to her medication. What's wrong with her? June, we believe her to be overstimulated by popular culture. Personally, I think she's possessed by an international news surface. It could be a combination of things. One theory is that modern society is going through extraordinary changes at a pace so rapid it exceeds Sally's abilities of comprehension. She's paralyzed by a huge barrage of unadulterated information. The rest of us are seemingly able to function because we can in no way fathom the true significance of events surrounding our lives. In fact, we don't even really have the energy to try. It's like being unable to sort through your junk mail. She also may be experiencing some millennial angst. Who isn't? It makes personal relations very difficult. Sally stands up on shaky legs and does a strange interpretive dance. Billy, what's going on? George, she's having one of her seizures. Don't pay any attention. I think she's trying to say something. William, she knows I'm here. Sally? No, no. What is it? What's the matter? No. Sally, honey, would you like a glass of water? No! Thank you. Our drinking water is contaminated. The entire Earth's water supply has been affected. Bottled water is selling very well. The Surgeon General has suggested we bottle our tap water for psychological reasons. We are in the midst of a drought emergency. We are? Americans are being called upon to conserve water in this time of crisis, even if it's contaminated. The typical American toilet uses seven gallons of water per flush. Billy, wait a second. We published that statistic last year. Our government is considering issuing fines to people who flush their toilet incessantly. How much is too much? Government shouldn't be going around poking their noses into people's bathrooms. These are just some of the tough moral and ethical questions Dumbo is facing right now. The Sierra Club. I work for the Sierra Club. Yeah, right. Give me a break. Gene, why did they send you here? I don't know. Scientists have attributed unusually hot weather to a global warming process caused by the excessive presence of carbon dioxide and other gases in the atmosphere. It's beginning to come to me. These gases absorb and prevent heat generated by the sun from returning to space in the form of infrared radiation, thus creating a warming effect which may be responsible for erratic and often extreme weather conditions. Have you been listening to the news or reading the papers? June. No, but we've managed to stay informed. Do you find this weather we've been having unusual or suspicious? Well, unusual, yes, but suspicious? How can weather be suspicious? That's what I'm here to find out. I'm a scientist, Mom, a leading expert on the subject of global warming. An expert? I've been sent here to save the farm, George. <gasps> you see, this warm weather we are having is a trend that will transform our lives forever. This transformation will challenge both our moral values as well as our basic instincts for survival. George, you sure can spew a lot of trash out of that hole in your face. But when are we going to see some results? Billy, as a matter of fact, the Sierra Club has authorized me to give you this check to pay off the mortgage to the bank. Oh, Billy. Hold it! Don't accept that check until we know what this is about. Billy, we are living in a time of crisis, standing unsteadily at the crossroads of history, at war with ourselves and conflict with nature. Soon we will experience a kind of chaos and disorder never before known to man. George. <sighs> is that it? I've been sent here to help convert the farm into an international environmental research center. Our farm is about to transform itself into a beautiful, lush, tropical paradise. June takes the check. With any luck, the work we accomplish here will help steer the world in a new and positive direction. 
June. Do you think that's possible? No. What do we have to lose? Oh, Billy, God has sent you to save us from bankruptcy, both moral and otherwise. It wasn't God, Mom. It was the Sierra Club. Thank you. About six months ago, I was looking for another playwright to collaborate on um, two um, related one acts with. And so uh, I called uh, Theater Communications Group, I called Yale, and I said, you know, who have you got out there? And um, a couple people mentioned Susan Laurie Parks. And they said, she's got a wonderful voice and she's an amazing writer. And um, it's so unique, though, that I, I don't know if she, you know, it would really make sense for her to collaborate with anyone. So that obviously interested me because you know it's rare to find voices that really are original and have um, have a real sort of structure of their own and, and ask some tough questions about form as well as being poetic. And when I became exposed to Susan's work, um, I felt that it touched me in a very in a way that sort of bypassed my conscious mind sometimes. And sometimes I don't even understand it um, in in a conscious sense, but I understand the truth of it in a deeper way. And that to me is the most exciting type of writing. So um, Susan is uh, from Mount Holyoke, which uh, Wendy's also from. And um, let's see, she's written uh, Imperceptible Mutabilities in the Third Kingdom and won an Obie Award for that, The Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World, Betting on the Dust Commander, Fishes, The Sinner's Place, The America Play, and Devotees in the Garden of Love, which is her collaboration that's supposed to go with my play. Um, and in 1989, she was named the year's most promising playwright uh, by the New York Times. Uh, please welcome Susan Laurie Parks. Well, thanks, David. <laughs> um, David and I are collaborating on these these two one acts, and um, before we started writing them, we, we talked about a common theme, and uh, they were uh, the common theme was interracial relationships. And David's play, my play, is called Devotees in the Garden of Love. And David's play is called Bondage, so just. <laughs> but um, okay, I'm going to read a little bit from two uh, very different plays, or two different plays. Um, the first one is I'm going to read the overture from the death of the last black man in the whole entire world. Uh, it was done uh, about a year ago at Baca downtown a theater which has since closed, and it's going to be done again at Yale Winterfest, and I hope the Yale doesn't close down because of it. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, the piece has... <laughs> so bad. The piece has 11 characters, uh, which are called figures, 11 figures, and I'll read them off to you, and then uh, I'll read the overture, and they just all talk, you know, one right after the other, so I'm not going to try to <coughs> distinguish. So the 11 figures are black man with watermelon, black woman with fried drumstick, lots of grease and lots of pork. I can't do this. Uh, yes and greens, black eyed peas, cornbread, queen then Pharaoh Hatshepsut before Columbus, old man River Jordan, ham, and bigger and bigger and bigger, prunes and prisms, and voice on the TV. So that's the, those are the 11 people. And they begin by introducing themselves. <coughs> The black man moves his hands. Lots of grease and lots of pork. Queen than Pharaoh, Hatshepsut. And bigger and bigger and bigger. Voice on the TV. Ham. Prunes and prisms. Old man, River Jordan. Yes, and greens, black-eyed peas, cornbread. Before Columbus. The black man moves his hands. Not yet. Let Queen then Pharaoh Hatshepsut tell you when. This is the death of the last black man in the whole entire world. Yesterday, today, next summer, tomorrow, just a moment ago in 1317, died the last black man in the whole entire world. <gasps> oh, don't be alarmed. Do not be afeard. It was painless, a painless passing. He falls 23 floors to his death, 23 floors from a passing ship, from space to splat 
on the pavement. He have a head he been keeping under the TV on his bottom pantry shelf. He have a head that hurts. It don't fit right. Put it on to go to the store and it pinched him when he walks. His thoughts don't got room. Why died it he, huh? Where he gonna go now that he done died Where he gonna go to wash his hands? You should write that down. You should write that down and you should hide it under a rock. This is the death of the last black man in the whole entire world. Not yet. The black man moves his hands. You are too young to move. Let me move it for you. The black man moves his hands. He moves his hands round. Back, back, back to that. Not dat. When the world used to be round. The world used to be round. A round world? Around the world? When was this? Columbus before. Before Columbus. Before Columbus. <sighs> Before Columbus, the world used to be round. They put a duh on the end of round, making round. Thusly, they set in motion the end. Without that duh, we could have gone on spinning forever. The duh thing ended. Things ended before Columbus. The popular thinking of the day back then in them days was that the world was flat. They thought the world was flat. Back then when they thought the world was flat, they were afeard and stayed at home. They wanted to go out back then when they thought the world was flat, but the water had in it dragons, of which meaning these dragons, they were afeard back then. When they thought the world was flat, they stayed at home. Them thinking the world was flat kept it round. Them thinking the sun revolved around the earth kept them satellite-like. They figured out the truth and scurried out. Figuring out the truth put them in their place, and they scurried out to put us in ours. Mmm, yes. You should write that down. You should write that down, and you should hide it under a rock. Not yet. The black man bursts into flames. The black man bursts into blames. Whose fault is it? Ain't mine's. Whose fault is it? Ain't mine's. I can't remember back that far. And besides, I wasn't even there. Ha, ha, ha. The black man laughs out loud. Hambone, Hambone, where you been? Round the world and back again. What you seen, Hambone girl? Didn't see you. I saw the world. I was there. Didn't see you. I was there. Didn't see you. The black man moves his hands. We are too young to see. Let them see it for you. We are too young to rule. Let them rule it for you. We are too young to have. Let them have it for you. You are too young to write. Let them, let them do it before you. The black man moves his hands. You should write it down. Because if you don't write it down, then they will come along and tell the future that we did not exist. You should write it down, and you should hide it under a rock. You should write down the past, and you should write down the present, and in what in the future you should write it down. It will be of us, but you should mention them from time to time, so that in the future when they come along and know that they exist, you should hide it all under a rock, so that in the future when they come along, they will say that the rock did not exist. We getting somewheres. We getting down. Down, 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 down. I saw Columbus coming. I saw Columbus come and going over to visit you to borrow a cup of sugar, so he said. I waved my hands in warning. You waved back. I ain't seen you since. In the future, when they came along, I meeting them on the coast. Uh, the coast. I was so polite. But in the dirt, I wrote, ha, ha, ha. Ha, 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 The black man, he move, he move, he hands. And that's the overture from that play. Yeah, so that's takes a lot. I don't know. <laughs> a lot. Um, and this, the the next little bit I'm going to read is uh, from a play I'm working on right now, and it's called the America Play. And instead of eleven characters, there are only about three, 
<laughs> and this time only two people are talking, you know, back and forth. Um, uh, it's the story of a, a woman named Lucy, who's like about, you know, 400 years old, and her son, who's named Brazil, who is younger than she is. <laughs> and they are in this huge hole. So on stage you'd see this enormous hole, uh, and you, you know, they're in this big thing. Uh, that uh, their hus uh, Lucy's husband, Brazil's father, dug and then went on his way. It's the, the inexact replica of the great hole of history. So, um, so what they're doing is they're digging, looking for the bones of the father because they heard that he died in this hole. So they're trying to find his bones. So Brazil, the son, is digging, and Lucy, the old, old mother, is sitting with a big clock on her lap. She's telling time. So I'll read just a bit of this. And Lucy starts out. Here he comes, huh, still riding to the rescue. Is that right? Uh-huh. Still riding to the rescue, still riding to the rescue after all these years. Is that right? Whoops. Uh, my left limb feels loose, Lucy. Big hand on the 12, little hand on the 9. See this here clock says 9 o'clock. Nowhere near quitting time. Huh. To the rescue. Huh. Riding. Huh. My paw's gonna fall off. Still riding. My paw dig. <clears throat> now, 10.45, a quarter to, you got the whole day ahead of you, Brazil. Maybe, maybe. To the rescue. <laughs> Listen to it. <laughs> the sound of the line alone's enough to make you want to go on. My paw, dig on, maybe it's going to fall off. Big hand on the eight, little hand on the seven, it's early yet. Maybe it's going to fall out, not even noon yet. So much to live for, let's look on the bright side. All right, maybe dig <laughs> to the rescue, <laughs> riding. <laughs> Still riding to the rescue after all these years. <laughs> after all these years. Well, how come? How come? It's a big country. That's how come. And she falls asleep. me, Lucy. What? Where's my paw? It slipped off while we slept. Must be somewhere around here, under the earth, digging on its own, working overtime, gone solo without me. Just a stump left. So much to live for. Look on the bright side. I can't complain. You're faking, Mr. Brazil. Uh-uh. Trying to get you some benefits. Uh-uh. I know me a faker when I see one. I seed your father once, briefly. Ha! <laughs> we lived out east before we come out here. West, I still sees him. Although he's past, son, I still sees him. <laughs> In my head. I look out that way. West, the same way he left when he left us back east. I look out that way. West, the same way he left, and I sees what he left for us. This hole, this great hole, this hole he digged for us, us with his own hands. Before my eyes, I see this great hole, and after my eyes, behind them, I see him, son, his echo in my head. His hole, his echo in your head, in my head. <laughs> he was a faker, a great big faker, too. He was your father. That's the connection. You take after he takes. You take after him. I do? Sure. Put your paw back where it belongs. Go on, back on its stump. Poke it out of your sleeve, son. There you go. 11 a.m., plenty of time. I'll draw an X for you. See? There's an X. Huh. Dig here. Thank you. Um, when I found out that I would be part of this wonderful evening at Penn, I received a letter from somebody named Mindy Dickstein, and I thought to myself, what a beautiful name. 
And, uh, <laughs> and then I remembered that I actually knew Mindy Dickstein from my theater, from Playwrights Horizons, because she had been William Finn's assistant at the theater, and William had always spoken very fondly of Mindy and the assistance that she had given him with his work. But what I didn't know was that Mindy Dickstein was a playwright. So I began reading her plays, and I was just delighted with what I found in them. There was a play called The Existential Gourmet, which <laughs> featured characters such as the director of the Organization for Understanding Management and Prevention of Acute Psychic Pain and Anxiety. And I thought to myself, how does she know? And there was another character named Flora Forster, a young German traveler who is living a hypothetical life. And I once again thought to myself, how does she know? And I began reading all of the Dickstein oeuvre, and I was extremely impressed with them because it was a theatrical voice, both uh, a voice of irony and satire and of truth. And I think what this evening shows is how exciting it is when you come across uh, a new and vibrant theatrical voice. So I'm very happy to introduce to you tonight Mindy Dickstein, who's a graduate of New York University with a BFA in drama. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I don't think I've ever had any such so much niceness <laughs> in one evening. <laughs> um, so many nice things said about me in one evening, I should say. I have a picture of a naked man here to keep me from getting too nervous. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm not showing it to you. <laughs> um, I'm going to read the first 12 pages of The Existential Gourmet, which is a comedy with some sad scenes, too. Um, in the dark, the bouncy theme song of The Existential Gourmet, a television cooking program, is heard. I'll read you the words. Do you often wish for a sumptuous dish, but find when you try that you just can't cook? Do you feel it's too late to learn how to sate your curiosity? Well, you still can savor your day with the existential gourmet. Kierkegaard, Sartre, Nietzsche too, Heidegger, Marcel, and Camus, sure, they could philosophize, but did they ever tenderize? <laughs> so if you're feeling out of sorts, and the bakery is out of torts, and the place on the corner won't deliver, why don't you try to cook? <laughs> Uh, all you have to do is watch and listen, broadcast live from her studio kitchen to dear Felicity. With her, even you can savor your day. She's the existential gourmet. There's a sound of applause as the theme song ends and a spotlight illuminates Felicity Ickelbergen Stocken, a woman of about 30, standing before a large chart diagramming the best places to cut a raw chicken prior to cooking it. She's wearing a bright orange Chanel suit and holding a large wooden spoon, which she uses like a pointer. Felicity smiles at the audience and then speaks. Delmore Schwartz, in an essay entitled Existentialism, Does It Really Exist? <laughs> Defined it succinctly as follows. Existentialism means that no one else can take a bath for you. <laughs> Albert Camus, by contrast, expressed it in this way. Suicide is the only philosophical question. I've long thought that if we were to pose Camus' question first, then follow it up with the Schwartz analysis, the result would be a staggering rise in the number of people willing to visit the New York City Bureau of Water, Sewage, and Social Welfare, which is located in a newsstand on the second floor of the federal court building in Brooklyn, run by two elderly sisters, one of whom re routinely refuses to listen, and the other who, as a matter of pride, refuses to see. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My own personal philosophy can, I think, best be expressed by the raw chicken, and the problem of where to place the knife so as to make the most effective separation of, for example, leg from thigh. Later on, by the way, there will be a recipe for chicken diavolo, 
But first I would like to address tonight your recent cards and letters. Quite a number of you have asked me to recount the story of how I came to be the existential gourmet. On the one hand, I'd really like to say I haven't got the faintest idea, that life is a crapshoot, that the universe is just an unforgiving void, that hope and desire are the twin illusions, fate fickle but not a finger, destiny a tantalizing but elusive notion, etc., etc. But that, as far as I'm concerned, would be an evasion of the real question, which is not suicide, but where are you now and how on earth did you get there? So here's my reply. The lights rise on Irene, a woman about 30 years old, and her daughter Lucy, circa 1968. They are wearing matching dresses and are sunning themselves on identical, Lucy's is smaller, lounge chairs in a suburban yard. Irene's hair is frosted and teased, styled with an absurd flip at the shoulders. Irene is catching rays with a tinfoil-covered reflector. Lucy is gazing at the sky, which is blue. Uh, Felicity says, that's Irene, my mother over there, in the psychedelic sundress, and that's me sitting next to her. That's what I looked like in 1968 when they used to call me by my nickname, Lucy. Irene made the mother-daughter dresses. Her hair is by Miss Clairol. <laughs> this is part one of how I became the existential gourmet. The spotlight on Felicity goes out. There's the sound of bees, insects, lawnmowers, sprinklers watering the grass, and a breeze rustling the trees. Irene says, I exist because I am present. I make my hair blonde, and that helps me to be visible. <laughs> I insist on being here, no matter what. No matter what happens, it's a struggle. This is what I'm doing. I'm striving, twisting. You have no idea what's inside here, Lucy. I want you to know this, because someday I am going to go bald. I'm going to lose all of my hair, and your father will not love me anymore, and things will become hard. <laughs> because what he loves, he loves my hair. My hair is me, see? I'm scratching the edges. My hair is me. Lucy, lying back on her chair, looking at the sky, says, Watch me, watch me. I'm spinning. Irene says, Look at the pretty dress. Look at our pretty dresses made by me. Now we're twins. We're identical. We feel the same things. You are my child. You are special to me. I exist because of you. You make me happen. Someday when you're grown up and live somewhere far away from me, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You are there already. You are living in the future now. My past is your future, see? My past is now, which is 1968, which is the present, which is your future. I read that in House Beautiful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something about a gulf. Oh, forget it. Be careful, there's a bee. Lucy says, look at me, I'm moving and the clouds are standing still in the sky. Can you feel what I feel? The clouds are still and the earth is moving underneath me, underneath my chaise. I can feel the globe turning on its axis, moving very fast, rushing around and around, right underneath my spine. My backbone is connected to the chaise and the chaise to the patio and the patio to the ground and the ground reaches all the way to the center of the earth and we are spinning. Can you see me spinning? Yeah, well, never mind about that, Lucy. I have something important to tell you and that's not important, so listen to me. This is something it's time for you to know. In fact, I've been meaning to tell you for some time now, and, well, I just forgot. So listen to me now. Yes, you're a Jew. I'm a what? You're a Jew. What's a Jew? It's what you are. Oh, people kill Jews. Why? Because they're Jews. Why? Because that's what they are. They're Jews. Oh, is that why I can't have hair like yours? No, you can't have hair like mine because I said so. Is that why I can't take off my top anymore, like William who lives next door? No, you can't take your top off anymore because I said so. Can you take off your top? No, I can't. Why not? Because. Because why? Because I said so, Lucy, that's why. Don't look at me like that. I'm just trying to give you a sense of things as they are. You can't keep living in a pretend world. You can't take off your, chop, your top, and you're a Jew, and that's the way things are, and nothing that you or I can do will make any difference whatsoever. I don't want to be a Jew. Well, that's too bad, dear, because that's what you are. Am I the only one? No. I'm a Jew, and so is your father. I'll bet William isn't. He can take off his top when it's hot. That has nothing to do with it. William can take his top off because he's a boy. That's why. And you're a girl, and you cannot take off your top, and that is that. End of discussion. Can I be a boy when I grow up? No, you can't. Now be careful, there's a bee. Lucy eyes her surroundings fearfully. She freezes as the bee lands on her leg. She tries to get Irene's attention, but she can't move. Irene says, Fresca, I want a Fresca. Be good to me, honey, and run inside and get me a bottle. <laughs> 
music is heard as someone turns on a radio from inside the house. It's a well-respected man sung by the kinks. Irene says, Daddy's home, and then closes her eyes and resumes her tanning. Lucy waits in fear for the bee to fly away. The music swells, the lights go out, and come back up on a suburban kitchen, also 1968. Flower power mirrored wallpaper. The room is suffused with sunshine. The music continues. Sherman, a man about 30 years old, in a crew cut, in, with his hair in a crew cut, black suit, tie, moving in and out of the kitchen, packing a suitcase which is propped open on the kitchen table. Lucy enters and watches him. He says to her, life is a torture, Lucy. Everything you do is some kind of cruel torture and there's no relief at all, except if you have money, which is everything. You'll, you'll understand this when you grow up. Right now, we don't understand each other, but when you're an adult, you and I will be very close, and I will explain to you why I had to burn down my appliance shop in order to amass a certain amount of seed money in order to become rich. <laughs> you will understand by then that a man has to have a plan to break out of the torture grid. In my case, the secret is steak knives. He reaches into his suitcase and removes a small box. Here, look. He opens the box. Look at these steak knives. Are these not beautiful? Real mahogany handles, ultra-sharp serrated edges, finest quality steel and nickel alloy. You can see your reflection in the blade. Shiny, new. These knives are the key to my fortune. Do you understand? Do you get me? Yes, I, I think so. You're talking about knives. Sherman says, that's my girl, pats her head. Mother says that we're all Jews and that people kill Jews. Is that true? No, that, but that's what she said. Well, she's wrong, isn't she? Because we are not Jews if we don't want to be. I am certainly not a Jew. But she said you were. I'll tell you what, Lucy. I wouldn't pay too much attention to anything your mother says right now. <laughs> the screw that used to hold her together has come loose, and now her thoughts are just rolling around in her head like so many agate marbles. <laughs> Do you follow me? I think so. Her head is filled with marbles? <laughs> exactly. Now here's what you should think about. He produces a paperback book and hands it to her. This is a book that you should read as soon as you're old enough to understand that money is just a concept, that money actually is not money, and therefore it is all right to, to desire to have it in large quantities. Because this book, Lucy, is my personal guide to one million dollars. Do you see? You get me? Do you follow? Well, in any case, you will. This is a brilliant work written by Louise Seven, a great thinker who also happens to be a close personal friend of mine. Lucy reads the title of the book, How to Achieve Group Mind Through Synchronization of the Cosmos by Louise Seven. Sherman says, that's my girl. And remember, it doesn't matter one tiny bit whether you're a Jew or not. What matters is how rich you become. That's what matters. You've got to face the truth of this, and then your every move like mine will be determined by it. Truth is important, Lucy, because it has something to do with morality. The world is immoral except for this one thing. Do you get me? Yes, I think so. You're talking about good and evil. Yes, that's my girl. She smiles. He pats her head. He closes the suitcase, pauses, thinking. Has he forgotten anything? He looks around the room, sees that Lucy's still holding the box of steak knives. He takes the box from her, opens the suitcase, places the box inside, closes it again. Always remember that your father was a man out of time. I should have been born ten years earlier. Then I would have been in sync. Remember that. Yes, Daddy. And when you hear Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass on the radio, think of me. Think of me in a pleasant landscape, in an open, in a wide and green lush, on a sunny day like this. Yes, okay, good. I'm glad we had this moment together, Pumpkin. Me too. Sherman picks up his suitcase, sets a sealed envelope squarely on the table, puts a hat on his head, and exits. Music starts. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, sung by Doris Day. Lucy walks to the table and picks up the envelope. She turns it over and over in her hands, examining it. The lights go out and then come back up on Irene and Lucy in the kitchen, and the music continues. Lucy hands her mother the envelope. Irene opens it, reads it, shrieks, crumples the letter up into a ball, and throws it on the floor. And then she says to Lucy, listen to me, I have something important to tell you. Yes, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> yes, okay. But before I do, I want you to listen to me. Once upon a time, there were some people called Nazis who killed a bunch of Jews, the end. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not it. Irene goes out. Lucy bends down and picks up the letter. She smooths it out, folds it neatly, and puts it in her pocket. Irene returns with photographs. Here, look at this. Your grandfather took this photograph with my old brownie camera, which I gave him because it was the best thing I had when he went off to fight the war. If someone you know ever goes off to war, you can give him my brownie camera too, but not until you're nine. You can't be a brownie until you're nine. Then, after you're a brownie, you can become a Girl Scout and experience the best years of your life, just like me. Won't that be nice? 
but that will be later. Right now, I want you to study these photographs of dead Jews, some of whom might even be your relatives. Here, look. Look at this. There must be 100 bodies in that pile alone. All Jews. Well, almost all Jews. There, there, there. Lucy regards the photographs. Did you know that Mercedes or Benz or both, I can't remember, did you know that they manufactured ovens for the death camps? Did you know that these car manufacturers manufactured ovens which were used to kill Jews? Did you know that? Of course you didn't know that. You're eight years old, you don't know anything you can't. That's why I'm telling you the truth. It's my duty as your mother to tell you all you need to know about life, and now I have. Now you know everything. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not it. That is not. Not it. Not it. Daddy says you have a loose screw and I shouldn't listen to what you say. Daddy says we don't have to be Jews if we don't want to. Well, he's wrong, isn't he? Because you can't trust a man who thinks he can make a fortune selling steak knives at 59 cents a piece. <laughs> Which is exactly my point. I'm the adult here and I know things you don't know. And one of the things I know is that you should never listen to a word your father says. Did he tell you he burned down his appliance store? Did he tell you that? Did he? Yes. Well, what your father did is called arson, Lucy. Arson. And also insurance fraud. Fraud. And that means that he committed a crime, and now he's a wanted criminal, and the police are going to take him away when they catch him. Yes, it's true. And all the people we used to know will no longer want to have anything to do with us because we have become outcasts, social pariahs. And from now on, we'll have to eat dog food out of a can, and we won't have any friends because nobody likes to hang around with people who have the word tragedy emblazoned across their foreheads. And that is me, and that is you, and that is me and you. Are you, are you, ups are you upset? Do I look upset? Did I tell you that I won the spelling bee? I got a certificate with a gold star. Big deal, you think spelling bees are gonna matter when you grow up? They won't, nothing will matter when you grow up because when you grow up, you'll have a daughter of your own and you'll do your duty as a mother as I have done, teaching her everything she needs to know about life. And then one fine day while you're working hard to be everything your husband wants you to be, even though you're not sure what that is precisely, You'll discover that he's packed his steak knives and his lava lamp and his tools, cleaned out in short everything that he treasured, which did not include yourself, and you'll realize you've been abandoned in a once thriving, once industrial small town across a river from a major American city somewhere on the eastern seaboard, a place that is not even your hometown, abandoned without a word and left alone to raise a small child to be hounded by the police to face the scorn of people you once thought were not as good as you. And then you will be overcome by the stupidity of it all, Lucy, and you will get depressed, as I am now, and you will lose your will. Irene lies down on the floor. Are you having a nervous breakdown now, Mommy? Yes, Lucy, that is correct. Is it going to take long? I don't know. Your father has left us, and nothing I could do would stop him. I couldn't stop him. I couldn't. I can't do anything. I can't. But what will we do? I don't know. Maybe we'll move to Israel before anyone can come and kill us. Israel is a country for Jews. Israel wins wars in six days flat. That's the kind of place Israel is. <laughs> but what will we do there? We'll plant trees here. Start now. <laughs> she hands Lucy a card with a drawing of a tree on it and with slots for coins all about the branches. Take this money tree and go out into the neighborhood and ask people to put a quarter into a slot. And then, <laughs> when the tree is full of quarters, we will send it to Israel <laughs> and uh, plant a tree in your name, or my name, or any name you wish, except your father's. <laughs> you cannot name a tree after your father. I forbid it. But I don't want to go to Israel. I want to stay here and work on my diorama of Alaska. <laughs> Next week at school, we're going to learn how to turn a Quaker oatmeal cereal box into a camera. <laughs> well, you can't stay here the rest of your life, Lucy, so you might as well know that right now. You're sometimes a very stupid child. I'm sorry. Go, go outside and collect money for trees for Israel and let me lie on the floor a while. But, but what will we do? Just let me lie on the floor a while. Just let me lie on the floor a while. Lucy bends down and strokes her mother's hair. Uh, music, uh, Hold On, I'm Coming, sung by Sam and Dave. Irene says, Promise me. Lucy says, Yes. Promise me that you will hate your father. Do it. <laughs> yes, okay. Promise me. Lights fade. Music continues a beat in the darkness, then stops. Spotlight comes up on Felicity in the television studio. That's part one. Now it's time for a slight commercial interruption. Those of you here in the studio audience will be entertained by Miss Flora Forster, a visitor to our fair city from the German region of Bavaria, who has chosen to play for you tonight on her accordion, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. <laughs> 
Viewers at home, please bear with us while we hawk a few local products. When we resume with part two, you'll have the chance to meet a wonderful array of characters, including the aforementioned Louise Seven, as well as Dr. Phil Goodstein, the man who saves Irene from misery, and several taxi drivers, including Sue Mi Pak, who hails from North Korea and has agreed to sing us some ballads, and Jesus Perez, who was born in Guatemala and raised in New York, and has asked for the opportunity to describe for us his recent experience of driving his cab around the world. Some of the actors would also like to have a chance later in the show to say hello to you, including Mr. Archibald Potts, who so ably played the role of my father, Sherman Ickelbergenstocken. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The spotlight goes out. The television studio is flooded with light as Flora Foster steps onto the stage and commences her rendition in German of I Left My Heart in San Francisco. She accompanies herself on the accordion and punctuates the entire performance with a tap dance. That's part one. <laughs> 